Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, seek your presence uh, with us this morning, Lord. We uh, ask that you'd be with us now. We pray that uh, your spirit would work through your word, uh, that Christ would be honoured, that our lives would be transformed. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the, uh, my three talks uh, for this weekend, we're going to consider one sentence uh, in Scripture, which uh, is not as random as it might seem, uh, because uh, this, the sentence there is sort of many sentences in English. It's that uh, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 was one sentence as Paul wrote it, one 202-word sentence, uh, and it's not quite as you pick up a 19th century novel, you'll probably find a 200-word sentence. It's sort of a little removed today, but it's not that far back even in, uh, in English literature that you could find a 202-word sentence. Um, but anyway, Paul certainly had one. And maybe it was the greatest sentence ever written. I'm not sure, but I'm sure it's among the better candidates. Uh, and what's striking there is that without question, Paul is, was powerfully alive to and quite excited by what he was writing. And it's my prayer and hope that this weekend we each one will be powerfully alive to and excited about this uh, as well. Paul's great sentence uh, is a declaration of praise to God for his mighty and for his saving deliverance from sin and death through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is something, you know, a little bit like sort of John 1, 1 to 18, it's a bit of a torrent, an avalanche of praise, if you like. It's, um, uh, it is really one thing after another in quick succession. It's probably the first half of, or two-thirds of this talk is the one where we're sort of going to go bang, 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 bang a little bit. So hang in there. We're doing the, some of the hard yards uh, first up, which is probably a good thing. Um, but although it does have this sort of rapid-fire uh, nature to it, which might be overwhelming uh, in a way, my great trust in God this morning and my prayer is that he will impress upon your heart. Now, I can't quite look you all in the eye. There's a few too many to achieve that, but I really hope that God would do that, that even if there's one outstanding thing that he presses home to your heart, perhaps by way of reminder, or maybe something that you hadn't really thought of before and seen it quite so clearly in the scriptures. So we trust that God will do his work, that he'd be glorified in us. Well, Paul begins uh, by praising or by blessing our Heavenly Father for how he has blessed us in Christ. And let's just read again uh, 3 through 8, which is um, what we're looking at. Ephesians 1, 3 through 8. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And friends, this declaration of praise is similar to uh, some acknowledgements of divine deliverance in the Old Testament. Some of David's psalms have that sort of overwhelming, rushing uh, feeling to it, or even the song of Moses and Miriam uh, in Exodus 15. But there is, of course, one immediate and striking difference 
from those and that we see uh, God described verse 3 as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here we have the one true and living God. This is Yahweh, this is God most high, the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, described as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 17, uh, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's worth our thinking about what does it mean for God to be the God and Father uh, of Jesus. And some suggest that God being the God of Jesus Christ is sort of a, an emphasis on his human nature, that Jesus is, uh, was and is fully man and is the model of human relationship with God as Father, uh, uh, with God, and also uh, with God being the Father of Jesus, that perhaps that on the other side is more an emphasis on his divine nature. This is a, an acknowledgement of his, the great Trinitarian sonship of Jesus, his being the son because he shares in the divine nature. He was with God and was God. And so that's why Jesus could make these otherwise outrageous statements like John 5.23 that is the Father's purpose that all may honour the Son as they honour the Father. You just think about that. That's outrageous. If he were not uh, divine, that's idolatry. Why would any someone who's merely a man be honoured in the same degree and same way as the Father? We could not sustain that were he not uh, divine. However, having said all that, I think that describing God as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is more about powerfully linking God with the saving work of Jesus, that he is our mighty saving God. He is God our Saviour who has saved us through his Son. And that's what we're to remember most when we uh, praise him as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, you know, a little bit of abstraction, a little bit of thought out there at the edges of bring the Trinity, that's fine, but I think it's really honing in on this is our great God who has worked so marvellously and wondrously and majestically. Uh, and this is a work still unfolding that is yet to reach its greatest climax in some ways, as we'll see uh, after morning tea. So uh, this outpouring of praise in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, this was Paul's passionate response to God's deliverance in Jesus Christ. And I think the second half of verse 3 uh, is a summary statement of this great deliverance. So we sort of start, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And I think that's easy for us to sort of brush over, you know, when words are sort of big and wow and superlative and you can almost sort of, little bit of a buzz, that, you know, yeah, great, but let's not think too hard about what that actually means. But we're not going to do that. And, of course, the other temptation is, I think, verses 4 through 8 get into more of the detail of what these blessings are. So is, there's a temptation. He's blessed us in the heavenly realms. Wow, you know, every spiritual blessing. Wow, well, we're going to think about what those clauses might mean. We're going to slow down. And the order in the Greek, which some English translations follow, is uh, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ which sounds tremendous, as I say, but what on earth or heaven uh, does it mean? So first of all, Christians have been blessed. And we are people who have been favoured, privileged by God with spiritual blessings. They are spiritual in nature and character. But what does that mean? What is, what is a spiritual blessing? Uh, now some will say, well, no, blessings are spiritual. 
They are not material or physical in nature, implying that a spiritual blessing is one that's non-physical, but I don't think that's Paul's idea here. Uh, and any susceptibility that we have to that probably reflects what you know romanticism, that, that movement in Western culture from about 1800, this revival of classical Greek thinking in philosophy, literature, architecture. That's why you can see buildings in downtown Sydney, more in the financial district built in the 1860s, 70s, 80s, with those huge columns, and you think, you know, if we could bring Paul back, he could wander through there and think, oh, am I back in Athens or am I, is this Rome? What's the story? Um, and it affected the whole mood of our 19th century society. And one part of it was quite an unbiblical uh, view of death as, as a release from the constraints of a body. And I, it actually sometimes even evangelical hymnody reflects that kind of thing. And apparently those who, historians and others who have gone around looking at a great job, but they're looking at the, the, the what do you call them, the tombstones, the, what are, the thingies, you know, John Smith, you know, Whatever. And uh, up until about 1800, there were so many of them referred to, I will rise, or references to the resurrection, I am the resurrection and the life, quoting that kind of thing about Jesus. That's why I made sure on my dad's one we, we put that verse. But um, after about 1800, with the rise of this revival of Greco-Roman thinking, it's all sort of ethereal, in bliss. and you know, In other words, resurrection sort of didn't pop up very often on those tombstones, which is quite interesting. But of course, blessings of a physical or a bodily nature, are a part of God's purposes. And not only in this life, but in the one to come. Remember the nature of everlasting life. This is resurrection life. This is embodied life in a renewed physical universe, a new heaven and a new earth. And so let's be careful when we say a phrase that's perfectly correct, like this world is not our home. That's true. But it's not because it's a physical world. It's because it's a sinful world uh, in rebellion against God. So spiritual in verse 3 is not about non-physical. It's just not the point. It's a category error. Uh, instead, spiritual much more simply just means from God's spirit. They're spiritual in that they're of and they are from the spirit of God. Okay, so they are spiritual blessings. They're from the God's spirit. And we'll see what they are more in verses uh, 4 and following. Uh, and they are also in the heavenly, we've been blessed in the heavenly realms or Places. What does this mean? Well, we need to get our mind around the term heavenly in the Bible. Things start easily enough. They used to speak of a first heaven, meaning clouds or atmosphere, uh, then a second heaven of stars and space. So still it's sort of physical universe, but a wee bit further out. Uh, and although strange to us, we don't use that language, it does help us understand, for example, Paul's otherwise weird comment in 2 Corinthians 12 about being, being caught up to the third heaven. How many heavens are there? Um, and later on in that passage, he talks about being caught up in paradise. And although he doesn't use the language of third heaven here, I think the idea in Ephesians 1 of the heavenlies is the same. That is, this is the unseen realm of spiritual uh, reality. And sometimes the heavenlies can mean the spiritual realm just in very general terms, be it of God or even opposed to God. So later on in Ephesians 6, he speaks about the forces of evil in the heavenly realms. But for all that, we also know that the heavenlies uh, or heavenly realm can also be that place where God especially reveals his glory. And in a sense, that's what we normally, when we normally use the word heaven, that's what we're meaning. Uh, or when Paul or Jesus spoke of paradise. And that is Paul's meaning here. 
And I believe it's really wonderful uh, because we have been blessed. We've been favoured in the realm where God is revealed in all his glory and where Christ Jesus rules at the Father's right hand. And if you could choose anywhere to be blessed, this is it. And right now, everyone united to Christ by faith is with him in the heavenly realm. That's the whole representative principle. Um, And very exciting, and I think where this passage goes later on, even after morning tea, we'll look at it in verses 9 and 10. A part of saying that we are blessed in the heavenly places is to say that we are stakeholders in the glorious, unending age to come. And and I think, um, what's his name, Peter O'Brien, in his commentary on Ephesians, he brings this out very nicely, because heaven is more than just sort of a realm. It's, It's about the rule of God. And this is a rule of God that is going to return in astounding glory when Jesus returns and we will be united with him and live with him. And we are already blessed there now in Christ our representative, in Christ our coming uh, and returning king. We are stakeholders in the glorious unending age to come. That was made certain by the death and resurrection of Christ but awaits its full, final and its glorious manifestation when Jesus is revealed from heaven and his rule and his authority is acknowledged by all. And friends, that's why I think Paul uses the word every to describe these spiritual blessings. When God does something, he does it properly. He doesn't leave anything out that's worth having. And all who are in Christ have every blessing. It does not depend on if or how or when you were baptized or whether you speak in tongues or have had this experience or that experience. Everyone united to Christ by faith has every spiritual blessing. And we'll think more about what those blessings are in a moment. But notice very quickly the last clause of verse 3 there, that uh, the blessings of God's Spirit in the heavenly places come in Christ. The in Christ, of course, is momentous. All blessing comes through Christ. Well, that's verse 3. But... Let's dig in more precisely into these blessings. I think that, that's sort of a summary verse in a sense, that verse 3. Uh, what more precisely are these blessings that led Paul to praise God with such vigour and excitement? Uh, from verse 4, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons in accordance with his pleasure and will. And here our Heavenly Father's work is described. And, you know, when did it happen? Well, in the past, something of an understatement. Uh, the blessings described in verses 4 and 5 of being chosen, predestined for adoption as sons came before the creation of the world. So Paul goes back into eternity because that's where the blessings began. The Father sent the Son to enact a plan agreed upon uh, before the foundation of the world. And if you're into your covenant theology, this is the covenant of redemption, the agreement between Father and Son in eternity to knowing they're making this world that's going to require this of them to, to redeem it. And notice how our Heavenly Father's purposefulness, if you like, runs right through this whole passage, the extended 3 through 14. Predestination, verses 5, and it's also in 11. The Father's good pleasure... 5 and 9. He's the Father's will, verse 5, 9 and 11. His purpose, 9 and 11. His plan, verse 11. 
And I think clear, uh, Paul's his very clear point in verses 4 and 5 is this, that any who enjoy God's blessing do so because God the Father has chosen them to do so. In He chose us in him before the creation of the world. In love he predestined us. And we'll think more about predestination tomorrow morning um, because it's, it's again, it's in that sort of 11 through 14. But for now, just four quick things about predestination. Number one, as we've seen, election happened before time. So God anticipates human need and caters for it. Secondly, God's choice was based, verse 5, on his good pleasure and will. We do not deserve it. Uh, verse 3, the cho- uh, sorry, uh, number 3, the choice is made in him, that is in Christ. There never has been any possibility of coming to God except through Christ. Even believers before Christ uh, uh, were made right with God by trusting in the promises of God subsequently fulfilled uh, in Jesus. Uh, and fourth and more particularly, we see the purpose of God in election, that we might be holy and blameless uh, and also particularly adopted as sons. And I think it's worth thinking about those uh, two things. Now, first of all, we see that we, are, uh, that we might be holy and blameless, but we might ask, well, does that refer to our, our status before God, you know, our justification, our right standing? Or is that about our becoming more holy and pure, or what we, you know, jargon-wise we call sanctification? Or might it be both? Uh, well, I think it certainly refers to our righteous standing uh, in Christ before God, but there's no reason not to include sanctification. I mean, we are holy and blameless in God's sight the moment we trust in Jesus. But we know that God is also working to restore us into the likeness of his Son which is a task begun now uh, and not finished until we die and go to be with the Lord or when Jesus returns. And notice also this portrayal of believers uh, being adopted. Now this is, this is, we're gonna, we start to sort of slow down a bit now. Um, this, is, this is immensely powerful. Uh, adoption was a, a Roman custom and, and gave to the adopted child the same legal rights uh, and rank of naturally born children. In other words, the child is fully part of the family. Uh, in God's family, Jesus is the natural son, if you like. He is divine by nature. We, however, become God's children by grace through adoption. And it really is, it's a, it's a beautiful doctrine. And it's one that can, every Christian needs to, it's, it's really the basis on which we can call God Father. And it's so critical to get a handle on this. Uh, it is the basis on which we call God Father. Intriguingly, in the Old Testament, God is spoken of as Father only about 15 times, and usually it's a sort of it's a national reference, Father of Israel, not, not about individuals. And yet, when Jesus came, he was always calling God his Father. And even more remarkably, all of the early Christians did the same with his instruction. And teach us how to pray, our Father, who art in heaven, etc., And indeed, this is the principal way we are to think of God as our Father. Through the natural Son, Jesus, we've been brought into the family and household of God, and we call God Father. We are safe in his arms. He provides all that we need. He is the perfect Father. And this is tremendously exciting. And I think uh, the the, the part of the scriptures I love on this theme is, uh, is from John, 
uh, the Apostle John, uh, in 1 John. Here's John, probably an, an old man by now. It was sort of his distinguished role to be the one who didn't get his head cut off or hung or whatever or drawn and quartered and lived to a very old age. Um, so maybe this is 40 or 50 years on, you know, from the resurrection and ascension, I don't know. Certainly he's had a while to think about it. Uh, and a while, you know, familiarity breeds contempt, doesn't it? You, know, you sort of get a bit dull with things after a while. No. 1 John 3 verse 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. That is what we are, he says. His excitement is palpable. After all these years, he still can't quite believe it. God has made us his children. It's just, it's just way too good to be true. And yet it is. It is. And, and in John 1, he writes, Yet to all who receive him, that is Christ, to all who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And see one other thing in uh, verses 4 through 6. God's purpose in election is that we might be, verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. That we might be to the praise of his glorious grace. It's mentioned again in verse 12 and again in verse 14. Uh, and there again, how remarkable it is that we, who has born into this world, you know, Scripture's pretty straightforward, bleak, because it's a bleak situation. We're born in the first Adam, Ephesians 2, by nature, objects of wrath. Uh, we're, in, we're God's enemies as we're born into this world, alienated from God. Yet we can become, through this marvellous redemption in Jesus Christ, to the praise of God's glory. And this got me thinking back in Isaiah 43. God encouraged scattered, exiled Israel, and he calls them his sons and daughters, whom I created for my glory. And in Christ, God is redeeming a people, vast in number, from all the families, nations, peoples, tribes of the earth, a people brought back from the exile of sin, you know, a people recreated in the power and spirit of God who will bring him glory. Well, friends, that's, if verses 4 to 6 are about, in a sense, the Father's plan and purpose uh, in Christ before the creation of the world, 7 and 8 is really, the, if you like, the end time in history of how God achieved this in Christ. See there, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And a key term there is redemption. A redemption involves deliverance by payment of a ransom. The one delivered is helpless and can only await the payment of the ransom. And this makes perfectly clear to us that no one can be right with God in their own strength. And it also makes clear the redemption or redemption price was, verse 7, through his blood. Our deliverance came through the cross of Christ. And the New Testament is just full of the language of blood sacrifice, propitiation regarding the cross of Christ. Hebrews 9, verse 12 says, Christ entered the most holy place once and for all, by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Well, 1 Peter 1, 18, 19, we, have been, we were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. 
Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, which nicely links us back to that next clause in Ephesians 1 verse 7, where Paul says we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. We live in a sinful world. We live in a world in rebellion against God. Sin involves unrighteousness. Uh, and a, a great effect or outworking tragically of sin is deception. And ignorance. And one expression of sin's deception is that many people think they will be okay before God in their own strength. Redemption? Well, others might need it, but not me. Tragic. And of course, usually this error is based on the comparison game of some sort. It's not hard to sort of think of someone we regard as more depraved than ourselves, and that may well be true. We may even feel quite smug and think, yeah, I'm actually a pretty swell guy. You know, God owes me. I mean, how, how distorted and away from reality can you get? But friends, it's true that some sinners are worse sinners than others. It's true, but irrelevant. I mean, consider a world record. Uh, it's a benchmark. I think the men's 100 metres, last time I heard about it, I think it was 9.58. doesn't matter what it will say, it's 9.58. You clock 9.59 missed out in terms of matching let alone breaking that record the fact that you are faster than six billion other people on the planet is of no benefit of no consequence whatsoever you may as well have stopped at the 50 meter mark and had a cappuccino frankly <laughs> really it's just doesn't it's, it's, it doesn't mean a thing the comparison it, it just it holds no currency at all sin is a bit like that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all missed the mark. If you miss, you miss. And of course it's God's rejection of that, uh, the comparison game that we, and the deceit of sin and the conceit of sin that we like to play, that creates the offence of the gospel. Which is why Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are people who know that they have no merit of their own to offer God. They have been blessed and delivered from a that great punishing lie that will lead to eternal ruin. And friends, if you are trusting in Christ alone for your acceptance with God, please appreciate that you are a greatly blessed person. More than that, you have the greatest blessing. You have received the greatest and most powerful miracle, new birth. That is the gift that has enabled you to look to the Saviour. To be a Christian is to be deeply and profoundly privileged by the grace of God. You know, a grace leading to everlasting life. Please remember that when other things disappoint. As they inevitably will in this world. Remember that. How deeply and profoundly blessed you are to see and to embrace Christ as Saviour. That is the greatest miracle, the greatest blessing. And of course, the, the sort of the complete absence of our own merit and the desperateness of our need for redemption is once again so manifestly revealed in the nature of the solution, Christ's substitutionary sacrifice. This is the death, verse 6, of the one he loves. The eternally loved one made sin for us and forsaken on the cross tells us that if there had been any other way, that we could have been counted righteous and forgiven 
than the one he loved would have been spared. But friends, notice one more thing about redemption in verse 7. The way it reads might have us thinking that redemption equals the forgiveness of sins. In, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now clearly the forgiveness of sins is fundamental, it's crucial to redemption, but redemption goes further. Or put it another way, the forgiveness of sins leads to something beyond itself, it is purposeful. Because at one level, God's forgiveness is rich, it's deep, it's more than, you know, you could sort of go to court and be pardoned or forgiven, and then the judge might say, now get out of here, I don't want to see any more of you, thanks pal. Oh, okay, I'm sort of forgiven, but not exactly feeling like I'm embraced either. But in the gospel, we're forgiven, and it's so richly purposeful. It's like the forgiveness of sins is this great stumbling block that, that needs to be dealt with to give us restored relationship. And I think we see this, for example, in verse 14, where redemption is mentioned again, but it's future intense. It's a coming redemption. It hasn't happened yet. It's about the full experience and enjoyment of salvation when the Lord returns. And likewise, Peter in 1 Peter 1 talks about a coming salvation to be revealed when Jesus returns. Hebrews 9.28 says the same thing. And so we rightly speak about salvation in past, present and future ways. There's past, present and future aspects to it. And we, we, we sort of see that in the way that we speak and it's all very appropriate. You know, we, it's right to speak of it in the past tense and implied in that question, have you been saved? Perfectly valid question and reflects the Bible's teaching on justification. The scripture also speaks of salvation in the present tense. We are being saved. 1 Corinthians 1.18, 2 Thessalonians 2.13. And just referring to sanctification, the outworking of that that God's doing in our life. And it also speaks of salvation in the future tense, of a coming salvation, of a glorification and the renewal of all things in Christ when he returns. So salvation is a, is a big, big word. And the forgiveness of sins is sort of leading us towards that. The whole roadblock, the difficulty, the, none of that could happen without the forgiveness of our sins. So friends, we see in all of this that God's grace and blessing to us in Christ is its rich, it's extravagant and it comes freely, verse 7, from the riches of God's grace. A grace, verse 8, that has been lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And I think that refers to the wisdom that God gives us, that he gives his people. In Christ, we are blessed with wisdom and understanding about what matters most, who God is, who we are, what's wrong with our world, how we are made right with God. Friends, that's enough for now, but I just want to finish by saying something about verses 3 to 8 as a whole. When you think about the whole section, and that is simply to say that, well, there's many things you could say, but one thing at least is I'm just struck by how thorough it is and just how complete it is. That there's nothing missing, nothing left to chance. I mean, in place before the foundation of the world, heading beyond this present order this present world into the life to come uh, God is sovereign he's invincible nothing can thwart his plans and yet if I may add with reverence this is the gospel here that we're talking about it strikes me as being odd yeah, beautifully odd but strange I mean think about it planned and decided upon before the foundation of the world requiring God the Son to become a man and be punished for the sins of others. We sinners are made sons and co-heirs in eternal life with the natural Son. This is fantastic stuff. Here we are reminded that the gospel is not of human origin. It is not of human design. 
we are on holy ground. This is from God for us, from our amazing Heavenly Father. And in the extravagant kindness of God, our destiny as his people is nothing less than to be part of a magnificent reordering of the universe, centering around the rule and the glory of his Son, Jesus Christ. And that's what we'll consider next after we have the morning tea in verses 9 through 10, where we glimpse something of the immensity and the grandeur of God's ultimate purpose in his Son. Shall we pray? Father, we are conscious of the great riches of that Bible passage, Lord, where you are praised uh, for the way you bless us so mysteriously in that it goes back into eternity past, uh, so profoundly, so, so extravagantly, not, sort of not merely forgiven in that sense, but you know, embraced, brought into the very family, adopted as sons, made co-heirs with the natural son. This is just staggering stuff. And, and the way and the cost of, of achieving that uh, redemption through his blood, uh, it's really quite amazing. Uh, and you are indeed an amazing creator and you are an amazing saviour and redeemer. Uh, and we thank you for these things. And we particularly just pray that each one here this morning who is indeed looking to the Saviour, who is indeed uh, looking to him by simple faith and trust uh, for the forgiveness of their sins, that they might appreciate that though the world may not value this, uh, the world is foolish. And that indeed each one here this morning who has the Son as their Saviour is the most deeply and richly blessed of all persons, irrespective of the circumstances of life, irrespective of how long we live, irrespective of our health, irrespective of a thousand other temporary matters, we have the greatest miracle, the gift of new birth. And we acknowledge that this morning and thank you so much uh, in Jesus' name. Amen.